Hello and welcome to Spawned, a common sense and hopefully fun discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Kristen Chase. And I'm Liz Gumbiner, and we're the co-founders of CoolMomPicks.com. On today's episode of Spawned, in honor of World Autism Day, which is April 2nd, we are so excited to be speaking with Dr. Laura Klinger. Oh my gosh, You're going to learn a lot today. I know. She is the executive director of Teach Autism and part of the team who, get this, helped develop the character Julia from Sesame Street, who debuted last year. She is going to be sharing lots of information to help us better understand autism and to help parents of kids with typical abilities know how to talk to our own kids about it to help raise more caring, empathetic kids. Yes. And that's something we can all use a lot more of. So just a little bit more about Dr. Klinger, if you're not familiar with her. So she's an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. She's the exec director of Teach Autism, as we mentioned. She also serves on the board of directors of the International Society for Autism Research And as we mentioned, she is a member of the Sesame Street advisory panel that developed the amazing character, Julia, the Muppet with autism that they debuted last year. We're going to learn a lot from her today, and we're so glad she's here. Welcome, Laura. Excellent. Thank you for inviting me to be on the show today. We're so happy to have you. This is such a big topic, and parents with typical kids and parents who are dealing with autism in their own families, I know, have so many questions and concerns, and I don't think this is a topic we've actually covered yet, so I'm really glad you're here. Great. Happy to be here. So we have to start by saying, oh my God, Sesame Street. <laughs> because that yes. to us is like, as people write about the parenting space, that's like the ultimate goal, right? Is like Sesame Street asked you to do something amazing and change the world. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and how that came about? I can. I will have to tell you that in my own family of all the things that I've done, consulting with Sesame Street got me a lot of mom credit points. Oh, yeah. That nothing <laughs> has been as exciting to my children as Sesame Street consultation. That's so cool. That's like, you know, we always joke about how like our kids don't understand what we do. But you know, I guess when you work on Sesame Street, your kids understand what you do. That's exactly right. They thought that was cool as well. (laughs) Sesame Street started an autism initiative a few years ago, looking at how they could both increase awareness of autism and also support families who have children with autism. When they decided to go ahead with their autism initiative, they brought together a group of consultants from across the country. Some programs that were were parent advocacy organizations like the Autism Society of America, some self-advocates, so adults with autism who contributed, and then some university professors like myself were part of the panel. That's awesome. I can't imagine. I mean, I remember Sesame Street. My kids have watched Sesame Street, and I feel like you've made it. (laughs) Even with all your esteemed accomplishments, the Sesame Street is a big one. Now, we saw the excitement when they first introduced Julia. It was huge on our Facebook page. We, of course, covered it on Cool Mom Picks, but I'm wondering what you've seen as the response to this character from the families and your colleagues. I think it's a wonderful way to raise the topic of autism in the general community because Sesame Street is in everybody's homes. It's not something that we only see in clinic settings or special education settings, so it really brings the topic of autism into the mainstream. I will have conversations about Sesame Street and Julia, the four-year-old mother 
Muppet who has autism in my church community, with my children's friends. And so I really think that what Sesame Street has done is bring the discussion about autism out into the general community. Which is what we need more of. And I assume when we're talking about World Autism Day, that is one of the big reasons why we have that is to bring attention to autism, support the research that's being done. But I'm pretty sure, I'm not going to wager money here, but I'm going to say I'm pretty sure that there are a lot of people out there that really don't understand the definition of autism. So can we take a few steps back and could you talk to our listeners about what autism is? And I'm sure people have heard Asperger's, they've heard sensory processing. Can you just talk a little bit about that in sort of, I don't want to say layman's terms, like parent terms, if you will, for those of us who aren't familiar? Sure. Well, autism is really a spectrum disorder. And when we talk about autism spectrum disorder, we mean that a person has difficulty with social communication, knowing how to interact with other people, how to have friendships with others, and then also has difficulties with either repetitive behaviors or repetitive interests, maybe being interested in something so intensely that they are not paying attention to other things going on around them. So, for example, a young child might be really interested in trains and talk about trains and know everything there is about trains, but not be able to interact socially with other people about that interest. How about kids who are high-functioning, who are in you know traditional classroom situations? How does that play out? I think it's a really good question. So we used to think that uh, if you had autism, you also had an intellectual disability, meaning that your IQ is low. And now what we're finding is more and more individuals who have an autism diagnosis have average IQ or higher. So somewhere between 50, 60 percent of people on the autism spectrum have average IQ or higher. What that means is more and more we're seeing people with autism in our general education classrooms, in our university classrooms, really integrated in our communities in a way that perhaps most of your listeners don't think about when they think about autism. I think that's a really good point. And I think as much as there's probably still a lot of questions and misunderstandings about it, there's certainly a higher consciousness about it now. And I know, for example, when there are kids with behavioral problems in uh, an elementary class, the first questions parents will ask each other is like, oh, is he on the spectrum? And so it's kind of like they're looking to help explain where the problems may be coming from. Are we overdiagnosing? Are we like assuming that every child that has behavioral issues is on the spectrum, or is it actually a wider case than maybe we believed? I personally believe it's wider than we previously believed, because I think that there have always been people who have autism who have had average or higher IQ, and they were just never diagnosed. They struggled through school, struggled to have jobs, and just really didn't know what was going on. So I think we've broadened our definition in a way that is supportive of that entire spectrum. I do think, though, that when we think about behavior problems for young children or really anybody with autism, those behavior problems are coming from a different place than, say, a behavior problem for a child who has an oppositional defiant disorder. For children with autism, we often talk about the idea that autism is a learning disability and understanding other people Hmm. and understanding the world around them, and that those behavior problems are often due to frustration in not being able to understand social expectations, not being able to understand the world around them, and that those behavior problems aren't because they're being, you know, bratty children. They really are struggling 
struggling with anxiety and confusion and that those behavior problems are coming from a different place than some other kinds of behavior problems you might be seeing. Laura, I'm wondering too if the adults that you have spoken with or that are informing some of the discussion about autism have helped. So the folks that have later in life been diagnosed. Have you watched the show Atypical on Netflix? No, I have not seen that show. The teenage son in Atypical has autism and I loved it. I loved the show. My kids actually loved it. There were some mature themes. It's certainly for, I think, older kids, um, middle school, high school. But I feel that the adults who have autism that are able to share their experiences are helping because so much of it was a mystery. And they're able to say, it feels like, you know, I'm on a merry-go-round or it feels like everything's blurry and I can't see or or I can't hear clearly or things are really loud. Um, is that something that you found has been helpful in informing treatments and therapies and, and even the research that you're doing? Absolutely. I think the opportunity to talk with adolescents and adults about their own experiences and where they struggle and what really helps them understand their world has changed some of our intervention strategies. And some of my research questions have absolutely come from those kinds of conversations with adults on the spectrum. I will say that the spectrum is very broad. And so the experiences of a person with autism who has good language skills and is able to talk about their life that's probably a very different life than somebody with autism who has no language skills and has less interest in interacting with other people. So I think it's important for us to try to keep all of those perspectives in mind. We often talk here at the University of North Carolina about the idea of which intervention is the best intervention for which person with autism at which stage of their life so that the intervention you might do with a young child isn't the same that you might do with an adult. And similarly, because different people with autism have various strengths and weaknesses, one person might respond better to one approach and a different person to a different approach. And can you just tell me briefly how it's diagnosed? Because I'm sure there are parents with kids who experience various behavioral issues, and it's hard to know, you know, what the cause of that is, if it's psychological, if it's something chemical, if it's, you know, something with their brain makeup, if it's physiological. How how do you diagnose this? So at this time, our diagnosis for autism is based on behavioral symptoms and parent report. And so we diagnose autism by interviewing families and by doing observations of children's behavior. Right now, there is no medical test to diagnose autism. I think that means that the person who is doing the diagnosis needs to have experience with a wide range of what autism symptoms look like. So for example, we know that the earliest symptoms of autism may be in a a 12-month-old would be things like not turning when your name is called, not showing others things that interest you, not sharing your excitement. 12-month-olds often will do things like point to the sky when they see an airplane and share that excitement with their parent. And kids who end up going on to have an autism diagnosis don't show that kind of shared excitement with other people. When you have a person with autism who's six or seven years of age, they've often learned how to do that kind of sharing 
of interest with other people. And that's why I say that the symptoms can sometimes change across the lifespan. That's actually really helpful. And I I think that's probably what makes it so tough for parents as well. That's right. And I think those early signs are what we focus so much with parents to recognize those early signs of autism, because things like not turning when your name is called or not pointing or sharing your interest with other people, those aren't typical milestones that you're going to find in your baby books. The typical milestones are, you know, does he walk by 12, 15 months of age? You know, does he say his first words? That those other kinds of social milestones are rarely found in baby books, but are very important to learning about the early signs and red flags of autism. That's really helpful. And actually, you know, as long as we're talking about this, I'd love you to speak a little bit more about causation. What are researchers looking at now in terms of what's going on here and why it seems to be so prevalent? I would say that that's that's a million dollar question. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) We know that there are some genetic causes of autism. So for example, we know from research that's being conducted here at the University of North Carolina, but at other places around the country, that if a family member has one child with autism, their chances of having a second child with autism are close to 20%. Wow, I didn't know that. And so that really gives us a clue that there's something genetic that happens in the cause of autism. But at this point, our known genetic causes of autism really represent a very small percentage of the people with autism that are in our world around us. And so while there's a lot of clues that it's genetics, we really aren't able to identify which gene or combination of genes for about 95% of the children who have autism. So only about 5% of the time are we able to link it to a specific gene. And is there anything else like environmental that people are looking at? Because we've seen so many theories and crazy theories, you know, floated all over the place. Yes. And, you know, for example, there's been a lot of concern about whether vaccines cause autism. And we have an unfortunate situation where many families are choosing not to vaccinate their children. And we're seeing, for example, a resurgence of measles and mumps and rubella in this country because of the choice not to vaccinate. Thank you. Can I just say I'm really happy to hear you advocate for vaccinations. I think it's really important, especially as an expert. So uh, thank you for that. Well, the research on uh, whether vaccines cause autism, I would say almost all of the research says that vaccines do not cause autism, but that the early symptoms of autism are often occurring around the same time where children are being vaccinated. So I think it's easy to try to link that you went to your doctor for your well-child visit. At that appointment, there might have been some discussions about developmental delays that are happening or concerns about development. And then you had the vaccine and all of those things are happening around the same time. But that doesn't mean that the vaccine's caused the symptoms to start. And there really isn't any research evidence to support that. In fact, the first publication that started the concerns about vaccines causing autism, there's been a lot of uh, media attention that that researcher was fraudulent in his data, and he really did not find a link between vaccines and autism. And just for the record, using microwaves, living near power lines, using Wi-Fi while you're pregnant, those things are not linked to autism. Not that we know of. Now, is there research going on to look at some of those things? The answer is yes. So there is an interest, for example, about this issue of power lines. There is an interest in whether um, there's actually a very interesting study being done by Dr. Piven here at the University of North Carolina looking at baby teeth to see if there's any evidence of exposure to different chemicals 
chemicals or environmental toxins in the teeth of babies who eventually go on to have autism. But at this point in time, we don't have evidence to say that those things are related to the cause of autism. Well, you know, I worked as a music therapist for a very long time and then taught college in that same field, worked primarily with kids with autism. And I remember the families and wanting to find some sort of cause. And I think, like you said, the the vaccination at the time was popping up when behaviors were being seen in the kids. And so I feel as though parents in particular of kids with autism were really trying to find some sort of cause because it's so scary to think that it just happened or it was genetic and there was no way to track that. I think, you know, as a parent myself now with four kids, that was certainly in my mind too. And I completely understand. I, you know, when I took my youngest child for his vaccinations and it's really at the height of the concerns about vaccine causing autism, you know, I took him and we had the regular vaccinations, but was I worried? Absolutely, I was worried, despite the fact that I'm a researcher and know that there's no really strong evidence that vaccines cause autism. As a parent, you worry. Um, Completely understandable. And uh, we all worry and want to make sure that what we're doing is the best for our children. There's some new research coming out of the University of North Carolina that through some brain imaging, we're able to identify which children are going to go on to have autism before the symptoms emerge. Wow. So there's some belief that there are likely some biological markers that will occur that will let us know which child will go on to develop autism. At this point in time, though, we aren't able to use those in clinical diagnostic settings. So at this point, we really wait until those behavioral symptoms emerge somewhere between 12 and 24 months of life. Well, and this is a great transition to World Autism Day, right? Because all the research and the work that you're doing at TEACH, and it sounds like your colleagues and yourself are doing at UNC, That's part of the importance of this day. Can you talk more about World Autism Day and just maybe highlight how it applies to families who don't have kids with autism? I think the hope with World Autism Day is it brings awareness to our communities about the fact that there are many children and actually adults living with autism in our communities. The current estimates are that autism occurs in one in 68 individuals. So it's not a rare disorder. And in our classrooms and in our community settings, families are going to interact with other families who have a child with autism. And we want people to have an understanding that it's a neurodevelopmental disorder, it's not a behavioral disorder, and we want people to reach out and help support families struggling to include their child with autism at school or in community settings. You mentioned being a music therapist, and I can think back to some of the kinder music classes that I was in as a parent with my own children, and, you know, there was a child with autism in kinder music class with us, and professionally, I really wanted that child to be successful. And then as a parent, I wanted to figure out what we could do to help that child and that parent have a more successful experience. And I think that is what the point of Autism Awareness Day is, to to really bring awareness to the idea that autism isn't rare, that you're going to interact with people with autism in all different places of life, and that that's not something to be afraid of. And we want that to be something that people accept, even if you don't have a child with autism yourself. That's a great segue for my next question. 
what are a few ways that those of us with kids with typical abilities can educate ourselves about kids with autism? I mean, even starting with language, like we used to say autistic kids, and now we say kids with autism. Is that right? So we're not using it to define the kid, but we're using it as a, a noun instead of an adjective? That's exactly right, because the idea is that you're not defined by the diagnosis of autism, that you're a child or a person who has autism. We try to say that because first and foremost, they're a child who has interests and has a family and has goals in life as they're getting older, they also happen to have autism. And I think by using the the label autistic person or autistic child, it really defines that person by their autism. And I think in terms of a different perspective, we want to say that they have autism. You know, some people with autism themselves like to say that they're autistic. And that's completely fine if that's the label that they want to use. For those of us who don't have that diagnosis, I think it's important for us to be sensitive that they are more than their diagnosis. That's great. We've always said when it comes to all kinds of things, people should be called what they want to be called. So I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb. But what are some other ways that families who have, I guess, kids who are more typical abilities, what are other ways we can educate ourselves about kids with autism? Are there certain resources you point people towards? or things we can look at with our kids besides Julia on Sesame Street, of course. I would have to say that Julia on Sesame Street is <laughs> very best ways to educate other preschoolers about autism. And in fact, the first video clip that came out was really showing this experience of Big Bird trying to interact with Julia and Julia was ignoring him and Big Bird thought that Julia didn't want to be friends. And then there was a conversation about how she learned differently and she did want to be friends, but Big Bird might have to try again, maybe have to get down on her level, maybe not use quite as many words, maybe play her way instead of insisting that she play his way. It's just a really nice example of what young kids can do to include a person with autism and not feel that because a child with autism doesn't respond, that it means they don't want to be friends. So I think at the preschool level, the resources that Sesame Street have are really the best that we have because besides the show, they have online resources about how to explain autism to children. And they have some resources for families who do have children with autism. So it's a larger initiative than just the TV show. And is there anything specific for those of us with older kids? If we've got grade school kids, tweens, teens, how can we talk to our kids about it? I always talk to kids as autism being a learning disability. In fact, some of the very best programs that I've seen to explain autism to older kids would be to do things like imagine if you couldn't see, you know, that's an impairment in your vision or imagine that you couldn't hear and that's an impairment in your hearing. But for kids with autism, their impairment is in the social sense, in understanding other people. And so sometimes we'll even do activities where we'll have children experience a situation where they don't know all of what's going on around them and how difficult it is for them to interact. It really is the idea of comparing autism to any of the other disabilities that they might see in their classrooms. Then we as educators, parents, and professionals need to be okay with that happening. You know, for example, if you had a child who was coming into your third grade classroom who was deaf, somebody would come in and talk with the other kids about the fact that Johnny can't hear and needs some extra help about that, maybe even use some sign language. But sometimes when we have a kid with autism coming into that third grade class, 
for some reason, there's no discussion with the other kids about what they could do to support their new peer who has something called autism. I think that's important in order for children with autism to be accepted and included for the other classmates to know a little bit about the diagnosis. I completely agree with that. And it's oftentimes not always, um, I don't want to say a visual disorder, but it can be something where kids, even teachers who aren't informed about who's coming into their classroom, might not be able to recognize it right away. They might see it later in social interaction or in behavior. So like you said, it's so important for there to be, um, you know, learning and understanding and teaching about this for our kids. I I like to think that kids are automatically empathic, that we teach them to not be. (laughs) And I feel like they are prone to want to help and want to learn and understand other kids. So I think your point is excellent. I know my daughter has a little boy with Down syndrome in her classroom, and it's a little more obvious, obviously, visually for them, um, as well as his behavior. But I don't know if they do that in their classroom. In fact, I'm going to check right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to ask. Yes, yes. You're right with um, autism. You know, kids with autism don't look any differently than anybody else else in the classroom. And I think it's very easy to assume that their uh, misbehavior is because of oppositional defiant actions. And instead, it's probably because of some sensory activity that is concerning them or they don't understand the social demands or the language. It's not usually because they're trying to be defiant, um, but we're quick to assume that those temper outbursts are defiant behaviors. And then we treat those kids as if they're bad rather than support them to be more successful. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Dr. Lara Klinger, for joining us. We greatly appreciate the work that you're doing at UNC um, at the TEACH program. And of course, to our listeners, mark your calendars. April 2nd is World Autism Day. We're going to provide links to the content that we've spoken about, as well as some of the articles that we found helpful to us, possibly the ones we featured on Cool Mom Picks over on our podcast page. Dr. Klinger, can you just share where folks might be able to find the work that you're doing? Um, maybe on social media, a website? Where are those places that folks can find you if they have questions or are interested in learning more? So our Teach website is teach.com. So it's T-E-A-C-C-H.com. And there's a lot of information on our website about the work that we're doing here at Teach and connections to the work that other people are doing here at the University of North Carolina and further across the country. Fantastic. And I see you've got Facebook. That might be the longest Facebook URL I've ever seen. <laughs> it's Teach Autism Program, University of North Carolina. I imagine if you just type in T-E-A-C-C-H in your Facebook uh, search field, it will come up. And also it looks like you're on Twitter, UNC Teach. T-E-A-C-C-H dot com. Thank you so much for this information and for taking the time out of, I'm sure, what is a very busy schedule to speak with us and our listeners. And thanks for helping to bring more understanding to families and create a more empathetic world. I think it's great in every form it comes in and you're doing a lot there. So we really appreciate it. I appreciate the interest and dedication to helping families who do have kids with autism be included in their community. So thank you very much. Well... Liz, now it's time for... Cool Picks of the Week! Cool Picks of the Week! 
and I don't know, I guess I'll go first. Yeah, Mine's sure. a quick and easy one. I am in love with the AnyList app, and I feel like I'm the last person in the world to use this, but maybe You're maybe not, not because I've never even heard of it. Oh, okay. What is the AnyList app? So you are the last person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and any of our listeners who don't know it, don't feel bad. I'm right here with yeah, you. Yeah, don't feel bad. So this was brought up over on our Recipe Rescue Facebook group, which if you're not a member, go join us. It's free. We talk about recipes and food and feeding kids. It's super helpful. We'll put the link on our podcast page. But someone suggested that they used their Alexa with the AnyList app. And they basically told Alexa what they wanted on their grocery list. And AnyList would then, it would populate there. We don't have an Alexa, but I'm like, I'm going to use this app anyway. And what I like about it is it's super easy to use. It's free. You can set it up in seconds, but it's a shared list. So if I'm adding stuff, my husband is adding stuff, we can also cross off stuff. And so it's no longer me and him texting, hey, did you pick up the rice? Hey, did you remember the light bulbs? It has, I'm not kidding, made our lives so much easier. And isn't that what a great app is? I love that. In fact, we just started a whole new system at the house where the kids have to write down things on a shopping list because we had a big uh, no milk of 2018 traumatic incident this week. Oh, no. (laughs) Yes, there was no milk. And there was a big debate about whose job it was to tell who and what and who was supposed to know. And anyway... It really wasn't that big of a deal. We live in New York City where the nearest door is like six feet away. But um, <laughs> but anyway, seriously, I could definitely use something like this to help coordinate because, look, we're all busy. Yes, we're very busy. And you know what? It's just, honestly, I, I appreciate fewer text messages. And you know what? We, you can create lists for anything. We started a list that's basically stuff we need at Ikea because we just moved. <gasps> I know. And so, you know, it's not just groceries. It's any kind of list. I'm looking at it right now. You know what I like? It looks just like Reminders app on iPhone. Yes, that like is very- Very, very similar UX. So you can have like a category for to-do, gift ideas, movies to watch. I like that. Yeah. I like making this. All right. So what's yours? Well, this is a list, but it's not a list making app. Okay. Um, So our contributor, Ibiduni Ojukutu, she did an amazing post about seven beauty brands all owned by women of color that she loves. Awesome. it's not only that the cosmetics are so great. You know that we, I've raved about Fenty, right? Which is available only at Sephora. And they make that gloss balm, lip balm, that is like the best thing on the planet. So it's not just the products are good, but some of these women's stories are so amazing. Like really cool, interesting stuff. Like she loves Habibi body. She's a really funny writer, by the way. So look for the article about POC owned beauty brands on Cool Mom Picks. You guys are going to laugh all the way through it because she's so funny. And she said she could write an entire article on Habibi called, I don't use this the way it's intended and I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, she's a woman of color. And so she talks about using the body butter in her hair. Like she has just great tips. It's really fun. But some of the backstories on some of these women are amazing. Do you know the brand Beauty Bakery? No, I do not. This is the one I'm dying to try. Oh, my gosh. It sounds awesome. B-A-K-E-R-I-E, Beauty Bakery. Okay, And they're pretty pretty big, like, kind of cult brand. They have the most gorgeous photography. But the story behind Kashmir Nicole, who was the founder, is so unbelievable. She founded it in part to have an all-natural brand. That was really great. She loved cosmetics. She wanted to support women who had breast cancer. And then it turned out, after she started this... She was diagnosed with breast cancer. Wow. 
And oh my gosh. I know. And so, like, now she's completely living it. She's a survivor. She's strong. She's a mom. She put herself through college and nursing school. She started this brand all on her own. She's built it into a huge company. It gives back in a really meaningful way. Like, I just love this article so much. There's just, uh, you know how much we love stories of entrepreneurs and women who start up businesses and success stories. And this is, like, seven of them right here. Plus, makeup. <laughs> yeah, makeup. So anyway, check it out. It's a story on coolmompics.com called uh, Seven POC-Owned Beauty Brands That I Already Love or I'm Falling in Love With Right Now. Fantastic. Of course, we will link those things up, my AnyList app, up on our podcast page, which is on Cool Mom Picks. And hey, if you have ideas, if you have picks that you want us to know about, we would love to hear from you. You can drop us an email, spawned at coolmompics.com. I have to say, we haven't gotten any emails in a while. So come on, people. Let's go. Put your phone down or pick up your phone. Drop us an email. We want to hear from you. You can tweet us. We are Cool Mom Picks. Use the hashtag Spawn Show. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We love to hear from you. So reach out and say hi. We always say hi back or we, we do our do. best. It might take us a week, but we do. We're very <laughs> friendly that way. People are always like, oh, you wrote back. And I'm like, of course. I'm just sitting around waiting for emails from listeners. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I do with my life. We live for you guys. It's <laughs> kind of it. true. That's kind all she true. does. Well, listen, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of The Spawn Show. Much gratitude goes to our engineer John Bowen who always makes us sound fantastic and like we're standing in the same closet which actually now we're, we're both maybe more comfortable in our closets but we're still not in the same place so thanks John <laughs> in fact if you look at cool mom pics on Instagram which you should be following anyway uh, in our stories today there's pictures of each of us in our closets as we podcast together <laughs> get a sense of what we look like behind the scenes it's not pretty but it's real it is real and you know what please leave us a review on iTunes and make sure to subscribe. You can do it right now. Download and save our episodes. Subscribe in this way. You will never miss an episode. It just pops up right on your phone just like that. It's magic. It's technology. It's amazing. It's safe technology. We don't even connect you to any questionable third-party apps or take your data. <laughs> we just want you to listen to Spawn. So, hey, thanks so much for listening today. This is Liz. This is Kristen. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.